Right, so I'm hoping to wrap up my introduction today so that we can move into some doctrines and start discussing those. Um, I'm not going to be here next Sunday, but uh, after the break, then uh, we'll resume and start with the doctrine of Revelation, um, which will cover two different parts of that, general revelation and special revelation. But I want to wrap up um, with the introduction today and just kind of... Um, go through a, a lesson that uh, is going to help us apply everything that we've learned up to this point about uh, using the Bible as a foundation for how we study the Bible, uh, how we uh, derive the doctrines uh, that we uh, practice from the Bible, um, and how we understand it. So um, I think that uh, there's one chapter uh, in particular that really illustrates this well uh, that I'm going to be going through this morning. And... Um, Building off of what I taught last week with application, um, this is kind of an example of um, how to properly, or in this case, potentially improperly, uh, apply scripture and what lessons can we learn from that, uh, this biblical example. So we'll be examining Judges 11. Kind of a hermeneutics lesson uh, today. Does everybody in the room know what hermeneutics is? No. Okay. Um, since uh, the only seminary student uh, present left the room, uh, I'll do my best to define it. Um, so hermeneutics for our purposes uh, when we're studying the Bible, this term can apply outside of the study of the Bible, but um, in terms of the scripture itself, it's just the method by which we actually study the Bible. So to uh, apply hermeneutics to the Bible, what we want to do is we want to examine the text, and we want to see what we can pull from the text, and when we're looking at a, a passage that maybe we don't understand or that's a challenging passage, we want to use the Bible, the text, completely to really help us to understand that. So if we come across a passage in Judges, we're struggling with it, well, does the Bible comment on that particular chapter anywhere else, or does it comment at least on a, a similar theme. So we put all those pieces together, and from that hermeneutic, then we can pull out uh, an exegesis of the text, which is basically just a presentation of what we've learned, the information that we've learned, and then we can start to build doctrine on that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through this chapter in Judges, and we're going to examine it. And uh, this is a very controversial chapter in Judges, so th this is the reason why I picked this chapter, um, because there's a lot of uh, debate uh, in scholarly circles uh, surrounding uh, the proper interpretation of this chapter um, and the events that happen, and also uh, there's just a lesson within uh, the chapter, removing the scholarly debate from it entirely, um, of what can we learn from the actions of the individuals, um, how they interpreted the scriptures themselves, that they, they were available to them, um, and uh, so on. So, we'll start in uh, verse 1, and uh, we'll just continue to move through this. Alright, so Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. So, right away in these first two verses, um, we already come across um, an example of 
what can we look at from other scriptures and help us to understand what's going on in this passage? Because when you're going through the Bible uh, as you're reading to help you understand, you want to be asking yourself questions um, so that you can uh, understand the context of what's going on, uh, any of the dialogue that's being presented between individuals, etc. So we see that uh, Jephthah is thrust out because it says that he's the son of a harlot. So we ask ourselves the question, has the Bible commented on this before? Why are they uh, thrusting him out because he's a harlot? Is this something that they're doing on their own authority, or is it something that we see previously uh, covered in the Bible? And we do see it previously covered in the Bible. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 23. In verse number 2, uh, there's one verse that uh, very clearly states that a bastard, which is just a term for an illegitimate son, uh, shall not enter into the congregation or the assembly, in some translations, of the Lord, even to his tenth generation, shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. So they cast him out because he was born of an illegitimate union between uh, a man and a harlot or a prostitute or... Um, Basically, someone who wasn't his wife, uh, depending on what interpretation you have. So, we see that he's cast out, um, which harkens back to this rule established in Deuteronomy. So, so far, that's helping us to understand. We continue in verse 3. Um, then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men of Jephthah, or to Jephthah, and went out with him. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me, and expel me out of my father's house? And why are ye come unto me now, when ye are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou, may, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them, and Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do uh, with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? So, we'll pause there uh, for a minute. So, Basically what's going on here is uh, the people that cast him out, that said he was illegitimate, uh, they're coming to him because they know that he's got a reputation for being a good leader, for being a good fighter, and they want him to help them out of this situation because the Ammonites are coming in and oppressing them. So they go to Jephthah and they try to strike up a bargain. Uh, so we see that exchange and uh, he demands that um, he become their head, and then he approaches um, the uh, king of the Ammonites, in verse 12. And again, um, as we're going through this, um, we can kind of go back and we can see uh, how people are, are following um, each one of these actions. 
So if we go back to uh, Deuteronomy again, we see in Deuteronomy 20, and actually this is something that um, might be familiar to anybody who sat through my, uh, my class on Phinehas, because I think I referenced this chapter in that. Um, Deuteronomy 20, we see that Jephthah, instead of just going and waging war against them, what he's doing is he's sending a messenger because he's trying to negotiate, and we actually see that there's a scriptural precedent for that in Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. Um, we see that it reads, When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it, and it shall be, if it make thee answer of peace, uh, and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And then in verse 12, And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then sh thou shalt besiege it. So he's first trying the, the negotiation. He sends messengers. He wants to uh, engage in a dialogue. And eventually we'll see that that doesn't work, so then he follows the next command, and he's going through these steps prescribed by Scripture. So we see so far that uh, not only did the people act according to Scripture earlier, but we're going to see that Jephthah, so far as it seems has a pretty good knowledge of, of the commandments and the law of Moses, and he's going to follow these steps um, one by one. All right, so picking back up in uh, verse 13, And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from Arnon, even unto Jabbok, and unto Jordan, now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. So the king of the Ammonites is making a claim. He's saying, when Israel came up through Egypt, they took away my land. Uh, so now I'm demanding it back. So now we have a question. Is that claim correct? Uh, because we're going to see a dialogue uh, that Jephthah engages in uh, back and forth with the king. So let me put it to you. Uh, pop quiz. Is the king correct? Uh, did the Israelites take away the Ammonites' land as previously established in any of the books prior to Judges? Probably. Because didn't the Lord hand them over as they were making their way to the Promised Land? Well, did he, lay, uh, did he hand over the land specifically of the Ammonites, though, is the question. I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. Well, somebody knows, and his name is Jephthah, so Jephthah is going to explain it to us. Um, so let's go back to the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 21, which should be another familiar chapter because we uh, visited this chapter the uh, past couple of weeks, I think, for various uh, verses. So Numbers 21, uh, verses 21 through 24, we see, And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn into the fields or into the vineyards. We will not drink of the waters of the well, but we will go along by the king's highway uh, until we uh, be past thy borders. And Sihon would not suffer Israel to pass through his border, but Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. 
So here it's establishing that they took the land up to the border of Ammon. And then we have further explanation of this same event in Deuteronomy chapter 2. As Moses recounts uh, the Israelites' journeys. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 16 through 19... We see uh, Moses writes, So it came to pass when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people, that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou art to pass over through Ar, the coast of Moab, this day, and when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, and met, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Uh, previously, he also established that they were not to um, uh, attempt to take any of the Moabites' land, too. That's what he's uh, talking about when he's talking about uh, the children of Lot, because um, Moab, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites uh, both come from uh, the union between Lot and his daughters that took place after Sodom and Gomorrah. So, we see that uh, the Israelites take the land up to the borders of Ammon, and we see that Moses uh, was given a direct commandment from God not to trouble them or to try to take their land because he prohibited them from interfering uh, in the Ammonites' land. So we see that the king uh, of Ammon now, this claim that he's making, is clearly a false claim. And we actually have biblical evidence to support that. So Jephthah, when he refutes that argument, he's drawing back from the history that's already been recorded so that he can make this claim. Which shows that Jephthah clearly has a knowledge of the history of the people up to this point, as well as the Law of Moses, which was written in the first five books of Moses, that they would have had access to. So we see that Jephthah seems like he's a pretty smart guy, and he clearly has studied the scriptures to a certain extent. <clears throat> Alright, continuing into uh, verse 14, we see, And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus uh, saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt, and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through the land. But the king of Edom would not hearken uh, thereto. And in like manner they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and Israel abode in Kadesh. Um, for the sake of time, I won't make us turn there, but uh, basically what he's recounting again is he's going back to Numbers 21. Um, he's uh, citing verse 4, um, and again verses 21 through 23. And um, He's continuously going back to uh, these accounts in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and everything he's saying is checking out, because they did indeed... Um, in fact, I will go to Numbers 21.4 just so I can read it real quick. You can... Turn there if you like, or you can just follow along. Um, Numbers 21.4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discovered because of the way, or discouraged because of the way. So, again, we see that he's going back and he's pulling this directly from the biblical sources that gave them their history. And this is hundreds of years after these events happened, too, because by this point in time, well, I shouldn't say it's hundreds of years, because I'm not sure of the exact timeline of Jephthah, but it is a significant amount of time 
because the period of the judges compassed about 400 years. So it's somewhere during that time period, which means that these events are far past. So he's still drawing back from this history that's been recorded and he's studied. Continuing into verse, uh, we'll go to verse 18 in Judges 11. Then we went along through the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sihon gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. And they possessed all the coasts of the Amorites, from Arnon even unto Jabbok, and from the wilderness even unto Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it, wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them we will possess. <coughs> and now art thou anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, did he ever strive against Israel, or did he ever fight against them? So here he's referencing Balak, and he's going back to Numbers 22, and he's recounting how uh, Balak, the king of the Moabites at the time, he never actually waged war against the Israelites because he was afraid. Um, rather, he used deception uh, when he employed Balaam, first to try to curse them, and then secondly to uh, take advice on how to uh, secretly trick the Israelites into sinning uh, to bring God's judgment down upon them. So, the case that Jephthah is making here is, I've given you a complete history. We only took the land that we were allowed to take. We were given instruction not to take the Ammonites' land. You don't have any claim to this land. It was given us to us by our God. Um, and so, he's saying, why don't you keep the land that was given to you by your God? We'll keep this land. It was given to us by our God. And are you really going to go against us? Because even Balak, uh, you know... Uh, didn't uh, come directly against us. Uh, instead, he used deception. So are you any better than him? So this is the case that Jephthah has built. And again, what we're establishing here is that we keep going back to the scriptures. We see that Jephthah is very familiar with the scriptures. Jephthah is almost quoting some of this uh, word for word, and he's giving us a complete history. He's making this case, and it's a sound case that he's making. So we continue on. Um, let's see. We left off in verse 26. So, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and in Eror and her towns and in all the cities that be belonged by the coasts of Arnon 300 years, why therefore did ye not recover them within that time? So here we do have a time stamp, and he's saying for 300 years we've lived here. Um, and he's asking the king, why didn't you recover them then? If you thought all this time that they were yours, they belonged to you, and if you had a rightful claim to them, why didn't you recover them after 300 years? This is how long we've possessed them. So this shows that this history has uh, been continuously taught and preserved for 300 years, and Jephthah is going back to this history, and he's um, 
familiar with it. Verse 20, uh, 27, Wherefore I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest to me wrong to war against me. The Lord the judge, uh, the Lord the judge be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words Jephthah of Jephthah which he sent him. So the uh, king of Ammon isn't listening to what Jephthah has to say. Then we see in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah (laughs) vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon unto mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace, from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he smote them from Eror, even till you come, uh, even till thou come to Minith, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards, with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So, now we're getting into what most people find to be the, the interesting part of this chapter, which is the vow. Um, up to this point, most scholars could care less about whether or not the king of Ammon actually had a rightful claim to his land, and they don't really care about the dialogue that takes place between Jephthah and that king. What scholars do care about is dissecting one single solitary verse and trying to build an entire uh, exegesis from that. So, I'm going to continue on with the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to go back to this, and we'll start to dissect this a little bit. But I just want to get through um, the rest of the chapter and read it, and then we'll have uh, a brief discussion. So, in verse 34, um, Jephthah's already made this vow. Uh, He's already gone out against uh, the Ammonites, and he has secured victory. Verse 34, And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, And she was his only child beside her. He had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me, let let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. So, we have a vow, we have um, an apparent tragedy, uh, and now we need to interpret that vow, but more importantly, can we glean any lessons from the vow that Jephthah made, And regardless of how we interpret how he carried it out, um, can we still learn any lessons on application? 
So let's start with the obvious question. What do we think? Did Jephthah actually make the vow or not? And when he made the vow, did he make the vow in the sense that he knew what he was saying, that he was going to offer up anything or anyone that came through his door as a sacrifice, or is there something under the surface there? Don't be afraid to answer. Scholars have been debating this for thousands of years. So he, he didn't know what he was saying when he made the vow. So are you saying that he made a reckless vow? But we've already established that Jephthah was a man of apparent learning that knew the Old Testament inside and out, or at least the books of Moses, that he could quote the history. So would he be that reckless? Sure. So, do we have examples of um, other reckless vows of the same nature? We actually, um, we can examine Joshua 15... Actually, I, I missed opportunity today. I brought the wrong Bible. I should have brought um, my Bible translated by G.R. Driver because, Brad, you would have appreciated that translation. That's the translation that he inserts a certain inappropriate joke in. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, So this is the account of uh, um, Caleb actually offering up his wife, or his daughter as a wife. <clears throat> um, let's see. Let's go to uh, verse 16. Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer, and taketh it, to him will I give Akash, my daughter, uh, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Akash, his daughter, to wife. So, two verses, we see um, someone else made a, a similar vow. Now, do we see that as a reckless vow? Because it paid off in the end. Othniel was a pretty stand-up guy. He was one of the better judges. Um, but that's a pretty broad vow to make, not very clearly defined. He's basically just saying, anybody who uh, takes this land, I'll give my daughter. So what if the guy who took the land was a jerk or incompetent? Then would it have been a reckless vow? Yeah, uh, Ecclesiastes 5, I think, uh, is the verse you're thinking of. I feel like man, in general, like human, mankind, um, to say something like that about giving up that land, he almost had to have had more info than what the Bible tells us. Like, I know no man that would say that irrationally, 
unless someone that's been planting seeds and manipulating situations to get what he wants, ultimately. Like, to put up something that grand, and then I have a person attached to it. And I just feel like that's when your time works. They're not willing to risk it for nothing, unless they feel the outcome will be in their favor. So you, so you think in, in the case of uh, Caleb or Jeff thought that they might have had information that we're not privy to uh, that made them more confident in making the vow? Um, Caleb's place, Jeff could have very well been on a high mm-hmm. of all the victories and not thinking clearly. Like I, I feel like those are two different situations. Yep. That was just my opinion. No, I mean, well, this is, it's good to have this discussion, though, because, I mean, so there are obviously truths that we can uh, take directly from the biblical text that we know f- for certain, but at the same time, like, we have to have these discussions amongst ourselves because we're the ones living our lives. So we can go to this book to give us the truth that we need to make objectively good decisions, but we're still going to encounter unique uh, situations to ourselves. Um, so having this discussion is good. So let's say for the sake of argument, uh, let's go with the idea that uh, it seems the general consensus in the room is that uh, the vow was, was reckless, um, even if he possessed certain information that uh, led to him being confident. Um, he still made a very reckless vow because he didn't consider all the variables going into it. So now the next question that we have to ask ourselves is he made a reckless vow. Um, the text, at least on the surface, appears to tell us that he went through with the vow. So now we ask ourselves, did he actually go through with it? Did he kill his daughter? Most likely, yes, because the wrath of anything would have been from God if he didn't. So his uh, fear of being punished um, and the wrath of God that we've seen clearly displayed uh, and, and throughout his, the text. And his daughter said, keep it. Mm-hmm. Well, it also says he did with her according to yeah. the vow that he had made. Because it's at the end of the chapter. But yes. any, any situation, anything we study, anything we look at, I, I always ask the, I like to think of it as a so what question. So, so what does this have to do with us? Or, how does it affect us? And the lesson we can take from both of these examples is we shouldn't be making a vow that we can't keep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in there for a purpose, but it's in there to teach us a lesson, obviously. That is a very good point uh, to bring out of this and to apply. I think um, another application that we can take away from this is We've seen clearly illustrated up to this point that Jephthah has uh, an impressive knowledge of history uh, concerning the Bible. Um, Can we say the same about his uh, knowledge of what the Bible has to say about human sacrifice? I think he went into this with a lot of pride as well. Yeah. He very blatant. He was very blunt. He said, you're going to make me your leader? 
Well, and that's actually an interesting point, too, uh, that I was going to bring up later, but I'm glad that you brought it up now. Um, so we've already established that Jephthah was uh, an illegitimate son. And we read the verse uh, concerning bastards not being allowed into the congregation. So the rest of his tribe rejected him, which to us seems emotionally cold, but according to their law, they at least did the right thing in um, casting him out. That doesn't mean that they need to mistreat him, um, so that's subjective uh, to that situation. But when he's approached to um, fight against the Ammonites, he's the one who asks the question, are you going to make me your leader? And he certainly shows no indication that he would reject that position or title if it was offered him. So manipulating the situation to get what he wants. Exactly. Um, so again, we're starting to see that he's got an impressive knowledge of history uh, concerning the books of Moses, but we're seeing his actual application of that knowledge fail miserably. And this is kind of the point that I'm, I'm trying to get to uh, with this particular lesson is we've studied up to this point how to receive uh, the Word of God. Um, we've studied the central theme of it, and we've also studied um, application of it last week when we went through Second Timothy. We need to be very careful sometimes because um, I, I've heard the word pride actually mentioned by a number of different people, and that, that's a, a good uh, word for us to really dwell on for a minute. So sometimes we can become so prideful uh, in our knowledge of the word, or our apparent knowledge of the word, I should say, that uh, when it gets to the application part, we're not so we're not so good. Um, anybody can quote scripture if they study it long enough. Um, you see seminaries that teach scripture. You see theologians and scholars coming out of those seminaries, writing books, engaging in debates. We see pastors uh, graduate with seminary degrees and pastor churches. Um, but it's all about application, because without application, that knowledge is completely bankrupt. It will do you no good. And we see this illustrated very, very well in this chapter where Jephthah is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the history of Israel and their conquests and their entry of the land. And that's commendable because, hey, great, he studied, uh, he, he, he took notes in Bible study. You know, he took notes in uh, Sunday school class. Um, but then what did he do afterwards? He made a vow where, uh, you know, it was reckless. He didn't consider all the variables going into it. There's scriptures against making vows. There's scriptures against breaking vows. Um, there's scriptures against human sacrifice. Um, and we don't have to necessarily go into this too deeply because I know we're getting close to time. Um, and this is a whole other subject we could, we could enter into. But, I mean, there are actually ways that Jephthah, if he did indeed make this vow, if our interpretation is correct, that he made the vow, he followed the vow, and that vow meant that he uh, had to offer up his daughter as a sacrifice. Um, there are scriptures that actually give him an out that would still satisfy God and not bring his wrath down. 
um, in Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 27. There are ways that you can pay a certain price if you've made a vow that you cannot fulfill. And you can offer certain offerings to uh, atone for the sin of making that vow that you can't fulfill. Again, where was Jephthah's knowledge of those scriptures? And so now we're starting to get to a deeper application of this because this is just a hypothetical discussion where we're talking about different interpretations and it doesn't really affect us because we're thousands of years removed from this incident. But when we study the scriptures and it comes time for us to apply them, reckless application of scripture can have severe consequences. We may not be putting our daughter's lives on the line by offering them up as sacrifices potentially and our ignorance of scriptures that could serve as a way out of that situation you know don't necessarily serve us but what about when we're engaging in conversations about salvation with people I mean I hope that we all have at least an opportunity to witness you know a couple of times a week maybe to somebody I mean when you're telling them all of the key components of what they need to um actually uh, do uh, in order to understand salvation. I mean, like, are, are, we, are we giving them the gospel message? Are we telling them that, you know, Jesus paid for all of our sins and we just need to have faith in him and submit to him? Or are we adding things in like, well, you need to be baptized and you need to go through this atonement process. Um, do we know the gospel? Do we know the scriptures well enough that we can practically apply them in our lives? And even with practical living, outside of uh, salvation, outside of witnessing, you know, do we know the scriptures well enough that we know um, how to apply them to our own personal lives and then explain them to others when we're asked to provide an example? Because there are many, many issues right now that we're going to face every time we step outside of these walls and go back out into the world. People have questions about what does the Bible say on abortion? What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Do we know the scriptures well enough that we can actually provide them with the truth and then explain it in a way that's appropriate for them to understand? Or are we completely ignorant of what the Bible says and we have no clue and we just are going to fall back on the tired, uh, well, the Bible says it's wrong. I can't tell you where. And I can't properly explain to you. And it's more than just that explanation then, too, because we can quote scriptures, but then how do we explain it in, in a dialogue? How do we engage in the dialogue? So, like, all of this is to say that when we study the scriptures, this is where we get the truth that serves as our foundation, but this is nowhere near being enough, because we need to then take that truth, and we need to apply it. So, this is the foundation but then we take that and we take it one step further and we apply it. Does anybody have any questions or comments to add to, to what I just said? I talked for a really long time, so if you guys want to turn, I'm, I'm more than happy to hear. Anybody? I have a question. Sure. So you were, you were saying about the ways out that he had. Mm -hmm. So, in verse 38, when it says that, you know, she went in the hills for two months, and her friends left because she would never marry, is one of the ways out sacrificing her to the Lord's service? So, that, that's, uh, that is actually something that um, certain scholars have suggested. Um, 
We don't have any early indications of um, either Jewish scholars or Christian scholars believing that for the first thousand years following Christ. Um, that was introduced somewhere around the first, or I mean the um, the 11th century, um, and kind of picked up steam from there. Um, where, so where they get that from, we can go to Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27 outlines um, a payment that one can make uh, for certain uh, people, animals, or even objects that are uh, offered up to the Lord. So in the, uh, the first four verses of Leviticus 27, it reads, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation, and thy estimation shall be of the male from twenty years old, even unto sixty years old, even thy estimation shall be of fifty shekels of silver, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and if it be a female, then thy estimation shall be 30 shekels. So, through the rest of the chapter, it outlines that you can make a certain payment um, to basically redeem someone or something. Uh, It gives a whole list of animals, even uh, fields, houses, etc. However, as we read through that, I, I see that as being more a redemption um, from being offered at all, uh, rather than a substitution, um, which I think is where that argument hinges on, because a lot of people want to say that there's a substitution that took place, when in reality there would just be an exchange of money, and then she would be free from taking part in anything, uh, temple service or otherwise. <clears throat> now, some people also go to verse 28 in the same chapter, Leviticus 27, um, notwithstanding no devoted thing, that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast, and of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. So again, people use an interesting hermeneutic there, and they say, well, because he devoted her to the Lord as a sacrifice, even if he can't offer her as a sacrifice, if he's redeemed her through money, she's still devoted. So I think that's where they make that jump to temple service then. Because they say, well, she can't back out of it because she's devoted. But he can pay that price. But to me, those are two different things. Because I, like we see they're, they're separated in the chapter as two separate, um, separate laws. So we see the redemption by money listed in the beginning of the chapter. Then we see a whole list of other redemption. Then we see in verse 28, it talks about devoted things being uh, belonging to the Lord. And then again, we have to interpret that on, does that mean that he could pay for her to not be sacrificed, but still be devoted as a temple servant? Or um, does that mean that if she's devoted, then he has to stick to the vow, and she's now a devoted sacrifice, so he has to follow through with it? But that would be a contradiction of what we already know about human sacrifice and God's view on that in the, the Bible, because he explicitly prohibits it. So I don't think that God would 
allow there to be that kind of a contradiction where I say don't do this, but then if you do do it, then you can pay a certain price, but you still have to do it. Because <laughs> like, now we start to get into convolution. But that is a good question, though, Danielle, because that's something that a lot of scholars have uh, presented in the past. So you're definitely on the right track um, in terms of thinking it through. Any other uh, final questions or comments? So um, I never like to end on a downer note. So um, one uh, hopeful um, hopeful thing that we can take with us as we enter into service. Um, Past couple of weeks, uh, we've uh, gone to Numbers 21 a, a couple of times, and um, <coughs> Jeff Dodd himself refers back to Numbers 21 numerous times throughout this um, this chapter that we've been looking at in Judges 11. Um, so, I will say this: um, Numbers 21, and again, this is uh, to give us uh, something to consider uh, as a, a final note in application. Um, Jeff thought had the head knowledge, um, he had the familiarity with history, and he referred back to uh, Numbers 21, he referred back to Numbers 21 verse 4, and he referred back to Numbers 21 in the later verses um, as he was describing the Israelites' entry uh, into that area from Egypt, and also um, their encounters with uh, the people groups that they came uh, into contact with. Um, it's interesting to me to note that he, he skipped the middle of the chapter, and the middle of the chapter uh, should be familiar to us all. Starting in verse 5, which is actually directly following verse 4 that he quoted when he talked about their journey up through Egypt. And the people spake against God and against Moses, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And we continue on from where we left off last week when we talked about um, Jesus' own words and his reference back to what happened as a result of that. Uh, they moaned about the bread. They were uh, struck with the plague um, by being bitten by the snakes. And that's when Moses made a, a brass snake, put it on the staff, and it became a symbol of what we now experience through salvation, through Jesus' sacrifice. So... One final note, I guess, uh, to take away from that is make sure when you're reading through the Bible, um, you don't just read the beginning and the end of the, the chapter. Read the middle, because sometimes that's where salvation lies. That concludes uh, my introduction uh, to bibliology. Now that we've established a foundation... Um, We'll move into the doctrine of general revelation uh, two weeks from now. We'll talk about the different methods that God has used uh, to reveal himself through nature, the human conscience, providence, and then uh, we'll get into special revelation and discuss uh, the various means of special revelation, uh, examples of them in the Old Testament, and then, of course, we'll get into uh, the incarnation of Jesus himself and the Bible that we have now as our primary form of 
special revelation. So, if nobody has any more comments, uh, I'll close us in prayer.